Hello, listeners. Welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy, and I am your host. Today, we're going to be discussing a topic that in a lot of Christian circles, to be completely honest, has been treated like a no-go zone. But at AC, that's one of the main reasons we believe it's important to actually have these conversations. So today, we're going to be looking at the LGBTQ plus community. In recent times, we're actually beginning to see some division among the varying identifiers within this community, which leads to the question, is it possible that one size doesn't exactly fit all? And if so, where are the cracks? Welcome to the AC Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Troy. Welcome to the AC Podcast. I'm here today with Andy and Wes. How are we doing, gentlemen? Doing great. If I was doing any better, they'd be calling me Troy. Okay. <laughs> how's, the, how's the weather out in Ontario? It's cooled off a lot. It's a lot nicer. We had a couple of big thunderstorms and that seemed to have broken the humidity. But it was a, a little bit torturous there for a minute up in the high 30s with the humidex. That's no fun. Well, we had the high 30s yesterday and it was glorious. today. Yeah. And, and, and today. it's going to be like that again today. It's already blazing outside. <laughs> Although I don't know if Troy, if you looked, but uh, next week uh, they're showing rain in the forecast yet again. Sounds, sounds about right. Honestly, my yard could use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it is good with forest fires and stuff like that. But it was nice having nice weather yesterday because Troy and I we had a barbecue. Yep, we had the Leadership Summit alumni uh, barbecue, and so for. Any of you listeners who may be some of those people, thank you again so much for coming. We had a had a great time just being able to connect with you again. And for those of you who might not be aware of what the Leadership Summit is, uh, essentially we take a group of young Christian leaders and we we spend a weekend together at Sasquatch Mountain. We will be trying to do one in Ontario very soon, and we use it as an opportunity to connect, to pour into them, and, and just encourage them in their their walk as Christian leaders, regardless of what uh, facet that really looks like. Some may be wanting to be in the more business world, in the marketplace, some in their churches, some just individuals who want to be a better uh, representative of Christ day to day. So, Yeah, and there's also a, an important, I think, networking component that happens to that as you meet mm-hmm. other other leaders and are able to uh, encourage one another. Yeah. The so So be looking out for that because... We got one coming up again here in BC, coming up in October. You can apply for soon. I don't think it's quite ready yet for applications, but soon. And then, Wes, you you got one cooking in Ontario. We got the all the ingredients in the pot. It's <laughs> simmering. We got a few things, to, a few spices to figure out. But otherwise, it's uh, coming together. There's an aroma that I I'm 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 feeling in the air. So I'm looking forward to that coming coming sure, to that's fruition. Not just the heat. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, that could be my socks in this heat. Uh, but you know what? I'll uh, whatever works, right? Whatever works, whatever gets in there. <laughs> well, hey, listen, we should probably jump into things here. We got a spicy mm-hmm. topic today. So we we absolutely should. Today we're going to be we're going to be having a, a, more of a conversation because I think that's the best angle for us to to take this at. We're going to be speaking about the the ontology of the LGBTQ plus uh, community. So our our goal for us today, essentially, no, we're not we're we're not going to go and say that we are the absolute ex- experts, and we want to take this from a um, essentially an angle where we're just looking at some of the cracks in 
in the way society deals with things, as much as you may have a group of people that all think that they agree, but I think we find sometimes that when we go so far in one direction, someone's going to get rolled over on. Because it's so interesting, you know, what it means to be human is is Mm -hmm. central to what's happening here. Like you're saying, uh, Troy, when you go uh, so far to one side, that it that there are cracks happening. We're seeing this in the UK, but of course we're seeing this this elsewhere uh, within the community. And and we'll we'll unpack that as we get into today's topic. That's uh, more of a complicated one. So it takes time. It takes time to kind of develop yeah. this. And and there's some you know interesting things that are going on in the news that that you know we'll we'll be able to reference. That's a part of this, you know. There's like, for example, uh, I've heard of this this documentary by Matt Walsh called "What Is a Woman." There, there's that documentary that just recently came out. But you know, there's there's other things too. Different exchanges that have happened uh, that that are kind of making the round on social media that I want to get into. But before before we jump into those, uh, let me just share with you two of my own exchanges that have got me you know, more thinking about this subject. One in particular is I, I teach a class on theological anthropology. So that's a fancy way of saying, what does it mean to be human from a Christian perspective? And in that course, one of the things that I assign to students is a research project in which they need to write on a m- historical moment of dehumanization. And by dehumanization, we're talking about denying a person their humanity, which as I've argued, if people have you know been tracking with me at any length, you've heard me argue many times, how how do the atrocities of the past, how have those occurred from the slave trade to, to murder? Well, dehumanization is, is central. If you deny their humanity, you're capable of all sorts of heinous acts. Mm-hmm. And we think of things like the uh, Cambodian genocide. We think of Rwanda. We think of the transatlantic slave trade. We think of Nazi Germany. You know, those are the sorts of ideas that come up, and that's that's what I anticipate as a research project. But it's interesting this last year because I had two students come up to me and say, you know, I would like to write on the dehumanization of the LGBTQ plus, and I thought. Oh, okay. That's that's new. That's new to me. Uh, you know, please. Uh, you know, and I and I said this, which I was was because I'm I'm I was actually kind of shocked by because I'm because I'm quickly like rifling. I don't know if you've had those moments where you're you're like kind of going through the files in your mind, going that that one's new to me. I I haven't. Yeah. I I don't. I've read a lot on this subject, and I cannot think of a moment that homosexuals have been dehumanized. And so I said to the students, hey, I'm open to you writing on that subject, but first you got to convince me that that's even uh, a thing. And so then I, then I you know, began to, to think of, uh, uh, on that. And the, the best I can come up with historically would be what the Nazis did to the, the homosexuals in Nazi Germany. That, that's an interesting one because when we look at that moment, uh, historically, with the Nazi, with Nazi Germany's, did they mistreat uh, homosexuals? Absolutely, they did. Mm-hmm. Were they rounded up with Jews? At, you know, in different places. Uh, yes, they were. But here's the big question: Did they do that because they didn't see them as human beings? 
because that is absolutely the case when it comes to the Jews. They saw them yeah. as inferior, less than human. But was that true of, of the homosexuals? So it's interesting because I started doing a little bit digging and a little bit of reading and uh, on that. And, and no, that's not what you find. It's not that they didn't mm. see them as human. See, because that would be quite problematic if they didn't see them as human, because you could have Germans, you know, non, non-Jews that are identifying as homosexual, right? That, that, yeah. are, that are practicing homosexuals. And now that, that's going to be problematic if you say, well, that person's not human. Like, how are you going to be able to do that? And instead, what you see in the literature is that Hitler specifically saw them as an enemy of the state and danger to youth, marriage, and family for mm. that ideal Aryan race, right? They, they are now an affront to that agenda. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of arguments in this field that I've, I've come to, especially as a Black person, have been really interesting because a lot of times people will want to compare what happened in the slave trade, what happened through, you know, through Jim Crow and segregation and all of those things that that gets compared to what's happening in the LGBTQ community. And as a Christian, I'll just go on record and saying this is incredibly difficult for me because I got to walk this very fine line of not allowing a gaslighting to happen. But at the same time, I'm aware, you know, I'm, a, I'm aware of oppression and things that 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 community has faced and is facing. I'm, I'm fully aware and engaged with it. But it is it does put me in a weird position to almost feel like I got to defend the black experience, the black struggle against the, uh, against theirs. And so sometimes I find with with these sorts of arguments the moment it starts getting into a comparative arguments, that's when I've found I'm like, okay, I got to step back because to be fair, and I think we would all agree on this podcast, we're still trying to work through this. So when you're talking about rifling through the file folders in your head, it's like, absolutely. Cause you want to approach this with respect. Well, and not all comparisons are credit equal, right? Like you can compare apples to apples. You can also compare apples to oranges and then you can compare apples to orchards. Like there's, there's a difference between a lot of these things. And I think that's probably, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> probably the struggle you're, you're kind of navigating through Troy is that it, there are levels of like, I think, I think we can all say that there have been struggles that the LGBTQ community has experienced. Absolutely. Especially I think, I, th I think if you kind of uh, break apart the different letters of the LGBTQ community, because mm -hmm. even then I don't think it's entirely I think there are disparities even to, between the groups and how they've been treated throughout history. Oh, just a, just a quick note, because this is interesting historical note with regards to what the Nazis did. They were more opposed they, to male homosexuals and not so much against lesbians. So lesbians more or less were left alone. Uh, but it was actually the males that were specifically targeted. So that that's just an interesting historical footnote to what you're saying. Hollywood's that's been like that. That's absolutely correct. Well, and I think part of that might have been kind of the objectification of women um, yeah. within certain circles. Like, I think there is an aspect of the over-sexualizing and objectification of women, particularly within somewhere like Hollywood, that has yeah. been far more... Uh, accepting and 
um, kind of, I'm not, I'm not even sure the right way to put it, but it, it's seen as more sexualized. And it was historically seen as more controversial to have, say, you know, uh, a man kissing a man in a movie or a TV show, but it was seen as, as risque for a woman to kiss a woman in, in, in a TV show. And I think there's, there's a, has been a bit of a double standard there, which sure. comes from uh, an equally uh, as problematic idea of, you know, the concept of anthropology, like you were talking about, Andy, with objectification and over-sexualization and seeing individuals as, you know, objects to consume and to view rather than like actual individuals with identities. So even then, there are like multiple layers, right? Uh, absolutely. And this is, I think, an interesting bridge into the bigger conversation that that we're having and that needs to happen. And that is that this over-sexualization has now morphed into an identity. And this is something that uh, if I could recommend a resource on this subject, because uh, we get we get people reaching out to us periodically saying, please help me understand what's going on right now, uh, because th this is so difficult to navigate. And, and I just my heart goes out for so many trying to navigate uh, these these challenging times where we're, we're trying to understand where is culture at and why does culture you know push so hard in certain directions particularly around the, these issues. And, and people are trying to just keep up with it all. But anyway, there's a great book called um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, which I would highly recommend. That is the more academic book. He came out with a, with a book that's, that's shorter and less academic that's called Strange New World. Now, that's a play off of, of course, Huxley's uh, Brave New World. Again, I'd recommend that resource to you. And one of the arguments that he makes, which I think is an absolutely critical argument to understand, is that our culture has equated sexuality with identity. And yeah. this is a Freudian move that Truman argues, and I believe he's right, that we have been taught to see what it means fundamentally to be human from our sexuality. Now, I'll just read for you a section in the book here that just kind of clearly states this, that I think is helpful. He says, in thinking of modern human beings as fundamentally defined by their sexual desire is now virtually intuitive for us all. We are categorized as straight, gay, bi, queer, and so on, and sexual preferences, once considered private and personal, are now matters of public interest means by which we are recognized in Taylor's sense. And if you've read, by the way, he in the book, he references Taylor's book, uh, The Secular Age, uh, in Taylor's sense of the world around us. And this makes the task of tracing the origins and nature of the sex myth an important part of understanding the modern self and the modern world. And I think this is absolutely essential because there has been an ontological shift. And by ontology, it's just a fancy philosophical word for saying, talking about existence, what it means to be or to exist, and specifically in this case, what it means to be human. So there's this human shift in identity to, to what it means to be human is now sexually defined. Now, do you That's now do you see what happens there, by the way? Because that means that if you deny the way I sexually identify, a young mm -hmm. person is going to see that uh, or culture at large is going to see that as dehumanization. 
And that's a that's a big problem because it opens a door very, very early on to a person's not only their sexual identity, but their sexual exploration. Because if you think if you're starting to trying to establish you got a young person who I mean, let's let's call it what it is in our elementary schools now. Well, do you identify as a boy or a girl? Well, what is a boy or a girl? Well, now we got to try and define that. And then, well, what is a boy or a girl like? Well, kind of whatever you want. And so now there's this gray area where you've almost put this pressure on a, on a young on a young demographic saying, well, I have to explore this for myself now. Otherwise, I'm not going to know who I am and I want to know who I am. And it's wrapped in this beautiful bow of. Well, you got it. You need to know who you are and you be all you can be and don't let anyone tell you you can't. And it's it, well, it's just it's setting people up for a, a, a great confusion before they ever need to know. Like my daughter's four and she she doesn't need to know whether like you don't need to know if you like that boy or not. I don't care what you need to learn to do is tie your shoes. Let's start there. <laughs> But you can well, appreciate and, from their perspective, they see this as a human issue, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and, and pushing the sexu sexualization of children younger and younger, that, that um, yeah. children are sexual beings before puberty, which is, I think personally, is hugely problematic. And mm -hmm. I've thought about this question a lot because I did my uh, undergraduate studies in sociology and was arguably bombarded with a lot of this stuff. And one of the things that was kind of driven through our mind was the difference between sex and gender. And I, I actually think that it was what, what I was taught in university is fundamentally incorrect and in that there are things that make men men and women women that are universal across cultures. So let's mm -hmm. say that, that except for tiny variations, external genitalia, that's, that's a, a truth, right? Yeah. But then there are things that do vary across cultures that vary according to their perceived understandings as something like masculine or feminine. And if you, you read some of the, you know, the psychological, the sociological, the anthropological, all those all logicals, um, research, those do indeed appear to be more learned, the mm -hmm. things that are typically uh, understood as masculine or feminine. So let's just say that external genitalia is a standard material reality. That's not learned. It just is which is why so many have expressed confusion when you listen to things on the media and they talk about things like sex assigned at birth. You know, that the doctor, he just invented and assigned the sex of the child instead of observing the physical reality and then recorded it as such. But there are actually things about male behavior and about female behavior that are cultural and learned. And so that degree, to that degree, there is a kernel of truth in the statement that gender is a social construct. Mm. So I think you can give that idea, you know, where it's due. But the problem isn't that we're being taught that gender is a social construct as much as we're being taught that gender is only a social construct. Yeah. And that is completely different from sex. And I think that's where we get ourselves into trouble. Yeah. Well, and, and that it is now ha has become an ontology. So now this means and is how we are defining what it means to be human. And this, this has then quickly um, you know, unraveled, if you will, because it's, it's a logical train that doesn't stop. It just keeps, it keeps moving. We have to follow this logic to where, wherever it's going to lead us. And that's where the LGBT community has gone to the T 
right, to the transgender. And this logic just keeps moving. I had an interesting conversation recently with a lesbian law professor. So she was giving this lecture that I was at. And at the end of the lecture, I went to talk to her and I said, hey, does it does it concern you the direction that that everything is moving with regards to ontology? I said, we we have moved now from transgender to transspeciesism. And and she understood exactly what what I meant. I didn't need to to define what I was saying here. And just in case anybody's not sure of this move, uh, there's a there's a cultural move called uh, furries. Uh, these are people that identify as animals. So it's this it's this you know what we'd call radical individualism, where now I self identify right according to how I view whether it be gender or you know, because it's now a greater ontological question or whether or not I identify as a cat. And that might sound odd or weird, but I have a friend, his his kids are in a school, in a class with a girl who identifies as a cat. It's not like these are just hypotheticals. No, this is this is actual actually happening and is actually quite pervasive. It's so pervasive that the, the, this law professor, she knew exactly what I was talking about. Okay, again, I didn't, mm. I didn't have to define what I, what I meant by this movement from transgender to transspeciesism. And I go, does that not concern you? And she goes, it absolutely concerns me. She said, so much so that my partner pokes fun at this, she said. And she, her partner says that she identifies as a banana. You know, again, jokingly in the sense of saying, this has gotten out of hand. Yeah. Now, one of my comments then back was I said it, it what really concerns me is when you have a society that has totally lost its grip on a human ontology and the logic allows for somebody to identify as a cat, but our entire legal system is created for human dignity, equality and inalienable rights. Does somebody that identifies as a cat do uh, do do they qualify for human rights? Are they still part of the legal system? You can start to see how quickly this unravels. And it was interesting because yeah. there are people beside me as I'm asking her this question, and they're like, yeah, we got this concern. Yeah, we got this concern. But then she said this, and I think this is key. She says, yes, I'm concerned by all these things, but the issue is far too volatile for me to say anything. I, I can't possibly speak into this. And what she really mm. meant by that is I'd lose my job if I started asking those questions. Right. Well, and I think there are dividing lines that people realize, you know, we might not be that far away from stepping over, but at the moment they realize that, you know, well, that's obviously silly. I mean, that's obvious isn't an argument per se, but even in, in Matt Walsh's documentary, what is a woman? I, I haven't watched it just for transparency's sake, but I have seen numerous clips. And there's one clip where he's talking to, I believe she's an OBGYN and is a transgender female. So a, a biological male who has transitioned. And Matt Walsh brings up transableism to her and says, you know, what about people who believe that they are, you know, uh, that they shouldn't have working limbs, that they've always felt that Deep down, they they only had one arm, and so they go to the extent of chopping that arm off. And this individual says, you know, very clearly, "Well, I think that's that's a mental disorder." And 
what Matt Walsh is, is pointing out is that the logic of, you know, I think therefore I am, you know, a, a distortion of Descartes, right? Right. And so therefore that is the reality. That's my lived experience. That is one of the main bases for sort of the transgender ideological position. But if you, like you said, Andy, if you extend that to transspeciesism or like Matt Walsh does to transableism, or even, you know, there was that backlash a couple of years ago with Rachel Dolezal, right? I think I'm saying her name right. Where she was saying, I am transracial. She was a, a white woman, Swedish background, who ended up tanning very extensively, getting dreadlocks, and was a, <sighs> in a leadership position in the NCAA, NAACP in her state. And then it came out that, you know, she, her background was not, in fact, African-American and all that. And, and there was a, an outcry. And I think, I think that exposed something about this idea and kind of exposed some of the, the tensions with, you know, the... Try, trying to take these ideologies and apply them consistently across things like species, race. You know, we, we become uncomfortable with that in one particular situation, but in another, we, we hail it as reality. Well, I, yeah. I think this is one of the things, Troy, that, that you were concerned with is yeah. that the issue has become akin or equi equivalent to a skin color issue where in the transatlantic slave trade, they were dehumanized. Yeah. They were not seen as human beings according to their skin. Whereas yeah. this is this is trying to equate dehumanization to not accepting the way one identifies. And yeah. I, you can start to see how dangerous that is and how quickly that unravels and why a lot of people are just so confused. And, and I mean... It especially in the in the in the black community it's been something that has been portrayed by different comedians and in different shows and those sorts of things but historically even even down to for example there were black people during the slave trade that for their own safety they would essentially do everything they could to try and identify as a white person because they felt like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Our skin is the scum of the earth. I didn't want to be this. I shouldn't have been like this. You know what? If you spare my life, I'll use my blackness to catch other black people for you. And then this came the term called an Uncle Tom. It was, it was someone who, who, who knew everyone in the community and used their influence for the slave trader. And the same thing, you know, that, that kind of thing even played out. Uh, the famous comedian Dave Chappelle, he, he, he was no he did a skit called The Black White Supremacist. And he dressed up in a KKK outfit and he was using the same rhetoric and saying all of these things and talking and, and he ended up getting raised to the highest level within this KKK community. And then he's like, you know what I want to do? Just a show of solidarity. I want to show you my face. I'm going to show you my face. And everyone's like, yeah, that's awesome. The thing is, he was a, he was a blind black man. He pulls off his hood and they're all like, whoa, wait a minute. And I think this is, again, what we see in society is someone has the right rhetoric. Someone has saying all the right things, but then they, they, take, they pull the hood off. They show you who they really, really are. And all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute. He sounds like us, smells like us. I don't think we actually can agree because this might actually be a deeper issue than we thought, but we made it very surface level. And I think that's exactly what you're saying because 
the moment you start make basing it off of surface level things, that's where I think you we're starting to really see this divide within that community. Well, and even just to carry that on, because Dave Chappelle has recently come at the brunt end of the transgender issue yeah. too, because in in one of his recent comedy, uh, I wish um, I was. <laughs> yeah, is his what, what do you call them? Not a comedy sketch. It was a comedy uh, uh, special. He did a special yeah. for Netflix, yeah. and they and he he verbalizes. And actually, what I found ironic was when I went and actually listened to the clip to try to get more context. It was in context of a, a friend of his who actually opened for him in in previous um, tours who was a transgender woman yep. who com- ended up committing suicide. And it was kind of this, this expression of him talking about, you know, a, a, kind of a public lament of the fact that he, he really appreciated this individual. And it was a very close friend of his who was struggling with issues and ended up committing suicide. And if you understood the context, it was, it wasn't a quote unquote transphobic rant. No. It was actually, you know, actually very inclusive um, ironically, but he kind of, because he said these things where he talked about, you know, I believe in biology, uh, it was seen as, you know, heresy, right? He didn't, he didn't tell the orthodox line. And that's where you get these kind of terms of, uh, uh turf, right? Trans exclusive, yeah. exclusionary radical feminists, where you have individuals who are in every other category, very left-leaning, yeah. but they make one sort of objection to the fact that, the the tra- the T in the LGBTQ uh, acronym doesn't really kind of correspond in the same way with the others in terms of their understandings of, of gender and sex and so on and so forth. And so then that becomes problematic that you can be a, a feminist, but uh, you have to include biological males. Well, yeah, like essentially what Dave Chappelle said is he said, man, I'm jealous of the LGBTQ community because if someone comes for you guys, the whole world is on your back. Everyone's supporting you. But if a black man says something or someone says something about a black person, ain't nobody showing up. Or if a black person goes and says something, the wrong thing, the wrong people are showing up. And that's exactly what happened the next day, like exactly what you're saying. And and then he went on record. He's like, I'm not going to take back. I just proved my point. You didn't listen to anything else I said. But you came for the one part that you felt was attacking your community. I said I was envious of your community because people care more about you guys than than black people in the slave trade. And he was one of the boldest people to just outright say it. And one of the things that that we're seeing, and I, I think comedians are at the forefront of this, is that we have a society right now that is very much being driven by fear. Yes. And, and maybe we've always had this where there's just certain conversations that aren't allowed. And that's actually one of the reasons why I think even the conversation we're having right now is an important one in that we need to be able to talk about this. We need to be able to talk about when the logic of an idea is unraveling, the logic of an idea is unsound uh, and, and leads in a harmful direction. But right now we're at a place where we can't even talk about it we like like this prof that i just mentioned this law professor right you you can't she she she's even in the the lgb you know community and she feels like she can't talk on this now that there is creating divide as was mentioned particularly between the transgender community and the lesbian community that that Mm -hmm. 
you know, as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, Troy, there is division happening currently within uh, that community over over that issue. And and if you're interested in that, you can you can read up about it. Uh, but that 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 is an issue. But I do want to reference though back to this idea of fear, because there's a video that was that was recently making the rounds where Senator Josh uh, Halley is questioning a law professor, Berkeley law professor, uh, uh, Bridges, and asking her the simple question of what is what is a woman? Now, interesting, you know, the Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman?, uh, which I have I have not seen either. I think you need to subscribe to Daily Wire or something like that to to see that <clears throat> to see that. But one of the things that's so interesting in that video, and I don't know if you guys have seen that that video, but what's so interesting about it is that the very fact that this senator is asking that question is de facto shut down and seen as transphobic and and she really indicates very specifically there that just even asking that question is uh possibly encouraging the suicide of the transgender community which we can all get along get we can all get on board um our, our concern for the mental health of the transgender uh, people, human beings that that have a high right high rate of suicide, but mm. the logic though doesn't doesn't mean that if somebody has if something has a high rate of suicide, well then that's going to change the way that we philosophically logically look at at the issue. Uh, we 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 need to see this. From a bigger perspective, and here, of course, the senators just saying, "Hey, let let's be very clear on what we mean by what uh, a, a woman, a man." Yeah, and this is where I think a lot of these ideological systems start to operate as religions, at least like in <clears throat> their their form and development, and how they're then worked out and articulated. You know the. UK uh, thinker J.K. Chesterton once said, for when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. And I think in a society that, you know, sometimes it's referred to as post-Christian, um, I think it's also to a degree post-secular in that we are, we're, we've moved on from kind of this natural materialism and, and we're actually talking agree. about things that are over and above natural materialistic uh, face value statements because that doesn't necessarily fit with a, a transgender ideology. It's not about, in, in one way, it's almost like the ancient Gnosticism, where the ancient Gnostics were, they were substance dualists, so they believed that the physical was bad and the spiritual was good. And they also believed in gnosis, right? Knowledge, that's where they get their name. The Greek word gnosis means knowledge. And so in that way, they're almost like neo-Gnostics in that the physical is bad, how they were born is wrong, but they have a secret knowledge that actually releases them and you don't know it, only they know it. And so in that sense, the the religious ideology is one of autonomy. And literally that word, autonomy, are two Greek words, autos meaning self and nomos meaning law. It's a self-law. It's a law unto yourself. And like you just articulated, Andy, there are gatekeepers. There are individuals who dictate what is orthodoxy and what is heresy. And there are even, you know, Twitter mobs that operate as inquisitions 
to make sure that everybody is towing the religious line. And I think a lot of this kind of uh, more left-leaning LGBTQ ideological systems, they're operating as religions in lieu of traditional organized religion that has kind of maintained the basis for society, especially Western society, for the last number of decades and millennia. Which is interesting that even within the community, there there's not agreement. Uh, and you can even see no. different books, such as um, the uh, Murray's book, uh, The Madness of Crowds, for example, who is uh, a homosexual but disagrees with where things are going and the logic that's being applied. But now he's written out and, and spoke out against it. But there's many others like this law professor that I met and I met others as well that are afraid to speak out. Well, but I think you're absolutely right in the way that they're operating. Yeah. An interesting thing about Murray, which I don't think a lot of people know, is he actually was responsible in in a big part due to a paper that he wrote for the legalization of uh, same-sex marriage in the UK. So he is actually a a hero within that community, but he's he's gone from a hero to part of the heterodox because he's pushed back on a lot of the more extreme versions of this. But he was responsible, uh, at least in part, for the legalization of of same-sex marriage out in in the United Kingdom. That's interesting. I'd love love to pose a question for you guys because as I sit back and I try and look at it and try and wrap my head around, you know, what we're seeing from the the pushing of the movement in pop culture to the – the push back in the opposite direction within the own community. Does it almost seem as though some of the pushback within the communities, because it seems as though at the root of the, per, perhaps at the root of the trans movement, there's still more, there's more of a disdain towards it because it seems very male driven again, as in men who have transitioned into women and because it's men transitioning to women by their, according to their biology, it's still a male dividing, you know, dividing the community or causing division within the community. It seems very, once again, masculine driven decisions. And maybe that's part of the reason why you see the lesbian community specifically, you know, if you read, get the L out of UK and how they were talking just about anything in the realm of, um, trans activism is is an affront and is 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 an attack on the lesbian community. Everything that I have read, it, it tends to be specific to men seeking to become women, and yeah. and I think the the reason being is because reality hits. It's one of those moments where you're like, we we can't play pretend with regards to this man identifying as a woman because men are different than women. Uh, mm-hmm. They're different in many ways that are just undeniable. And and so yeah. this kind of gets interesting because, by the way, I've talked with physicians that find themselves in impossible positions where they're talking to patients trying to find out if they're if they are a man or a woman, but somebody is so deeply entrenched in this ideology that they don't want to have that conversation or they see that as being transphobic to even ask that question. But they're like, listen, I have to know so that I can prescribe the right medication because your physiology actually matters to this medication. And it doesn't matter how you identify, right? Like this is why I think this is where the debate is so heated and tends to be towards just men transitioning to women because men are by and large, 
stronger, faster, and larger bone density, blah, blah, blah. That affects, you know, how you play sports. That uh, that affects, you know, different issues that, that as we keep seeing in the news, you know, it keeps popping up with regards to Leah, people like Leah Thompson and others that that are dominating in these sports where people are asking, is this going to destroy women's sports entirely? And and I'm quite convinced that, yeah, it it will and already already is. Well, she was nominated for NCAA Woman of the Year Award. Particularly what I find problematic with with the NCAA and I think is going to become more and more of an issue is that they now have come out with, uh, if I if I understand correctly, and I don't follow this, this is, you know, this is, like, like you said earlier, this isn't something we're experts in. This, we're we're yeah, right. we, we we're reading on this and trying to understand what's going on. But from what I from what I've read, they now are acknowledging that men that have gone through puberty ha- with regards to the amount of testosterone that is in a male body puts them at, at an advantage. And so now for the trans community, they need to be on hormonal therapy, if I, again, if I understand correctly, from age 12 uh, for them to qualify. But part of me just thinks this is an un, this is an, a crazy amount of pressure to put on a 12-year-old with regards to their future that will lead, I don't know if you if people know this, but it, that sort of uh, therapy leads to sterilization and can lead to surgeries that you can't undo, right? If this person in the future changes their mind. And let me just put one more piece to this whole puzzle that I think has gone completely untalked about. And maybe I'm aware of this just because I have so many friends that are physicians. And that is the incredible pressure that is being put on the medical community right now. Yeah. To, because uh, one of the things I find so fascinating is the medical community tends to take the brunt of all of this from both directions. They, mm. They're being told you need to do this. And then they're also being told that you're going to be held accountable for what you do. And so, for example, there was some legislation. Uh, recently proposed, and we'll see what happens down the road here, but they're saying, proposing that people can have up to 30 years to sue their physician for surgeries that they've done, that that they, uh, you know, if they're a teenager and 30 years down the road, they're like, maybe I do want my breasts sort of thing. And so what you're seeing now is politicians, lawmakers are really punting this whole debate over to physicians and now they're carrying the weight of responsibility from both sides. So now they're being asked to do these surgeries and they're also being held and they're potentially going to be held accountable for the surgeries that they that they do. And I'm and I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, oh right now our poor physicians, what what they are are facing is is really unbelievable. It's not surprising. And we talked about this uh, on a previous co- yeah. podcast, but it's not surprising that we are seeing so much burnout in the medical profession. Well, and I can't remember who I heard this from. Uh, it was a number of years ago, like uh, five plus years ago now. Uh, but I was, I was at, I believe I was at a university event and someone was in the course of a conversation said that he thought that in not too long 
evolutionary biologists and conservative Christians were going to be far more aligned than they were not. And even though, you know, in the last century or so, there's been kind of what I would consider to be more of an artificial, you know, animosity between those two groups than not, but groups that haven't traditionally been aligned in everything, but the evolutionary biologists are the ones who are going to adhere to the biological realities. And like you said, I think this pertains to your question, Troy, in regards to the male and female differences. I mean, the reason why we're seeing more pushback on biological males who transition to females is because the biological characteristics and the disparities between all those kind of categories that you were mentioning, Andy, there's a, a vast difference between that of a male and that of a female athletically. And so the, the evolutionary biologists are the ones who are going to be able to point that out very concretely and say, you know, this, there's these biological adaptations that for males are just higher due to kind of the, the, the difference between the testosterone and the estrogen and a number of other hormone levels compared to that of a woman. And so it was actually, um, I just looked it up. It wasn't the NCAA um, who kind of changed their thing. I think they're actually sticking to their guns on the swimming issue. It was the International Swimming Federation. Oh yeah, Federation, you're right, FEMA, you're right. Um, which is, the, the acronym is French, so I won't uh, attempt to say it and, <laughs> and offend all the French <laughs> listeners. Um, but they were the ones who said, you know, we're not going to accept anybody who who transitions after the age of whatever it was, 11 or 12, I think, something like that. But even that seems a little bit problematic because of exactly the, the facts that you just highlighted, Andy, with these treatments that are the same treatments that not all that long ago were used as for the sterilization of sexual offenders. And it is, it's the exact same drugs because puberty blockers are designed so that you don't hit puberty, which essentially, in, in a male in particular, it just nukes your testosterone levels, your body's ability to create testosterone. And that has really adverse effects on an individual. Effects that we don't fully understand. We're just not talking especially about. Especially started at such no. a young age. We have no idea what it, the ramifications of that are. So you can imagine why they're, put, they're, why they're proposing laws or policies that would allow for future lawsuits because they don't know 30 years down the road what is going to be the implication of doing this. So I think one of the reasons why the whole reversal of Roe versus Wade has become so controversial is bigger than just abortion. Exactly. Because what's happened is this laws. Okay, th there's there's a big thing that's been going on, and there's a great video out there where there's this congressman who's talking about this back in the Kavanaugh hearings, going, why has this become such a zoo? Why has this become such a gong show with regards to who becomes elected as, as a Supreme Court judge? And he said, well, the reason is because that's where all the power is. And the mm. reason all the power is there is because everyone is afraid to speak on any of these controversial issues because we want to get reelected. So what do we do? We punt it to the Supreme Court and we make them decide. And so now that now we care about who's on the Supreme Court because that's where we you know, have all these major decisions that are made. But now the Supreme Court, by reversing that, has punted it back to the states. And this then is, I think, has a lot of people concerned because now what do you do when it gets punted back to the state? That means that people have to talk about these issues. 
People have to debate them. They got to look at the science. They need to look at the research. They need to ask those deeper questions and then make a decision. And I think that that's got a lot of people concerned. But I don't know about, about you guys, but to me, what I think ultimately needs to happen in our culture or we're leaded, where we're headed for some dark times, because, uh, you know, from just the research I've done, one of the precursors to horrendous moments is, is that level of fear that drives people to not talk that drives mm. people to not have those important conversations. And before you know it, you've got an atrocity on your hands because it reaches this boiling pro- point and erupts. And that that yeah. has me concerned. So I'm, I, I'm actually hopeful that at least in this case with the U.S. and punting things back to the States, at least maybe there's some conversations that will happen that need to happen. Yeah. Well, and I think bringing this back down to, you know, how do we as Christians kind of understand and react to these things kinds of issues. I think this is an issue that is often framed as something that is not as big of a deal or something that, you know, Christians are making more of than they should be. But in reality, I think this cuts at the creator-creation distinction and the essential of the theological anthropological question of what it means to be human because we are created in God's image, male and female, he created them, right? And so there is something complementary and beautiful about the binary that God creates for a purpose, you know, right? It's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates a complementary helpmate. He creates someone who complements Adam, the male, the Hebrew words are literally ish and isha, male and female, you know, they, they complete one another. And that is intrinsic to the question of who we are as humans, and that God created a world of binaries. He creates the light and the darkness. He creates the sky and the, the land. He creates, you know, the, the animals that fly and the animals that, that creep along the ground. And he creates male and yeah. female. And, and that's a good thing. That's a perfect thing. You know, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then for the thick people in the audience, he says, you know, at the end, it's really good. It's very good. And so I think it's not something that we can capitulate on as Christians, because I really think it goes back literally to the beginning, Genesis chapter one and two. Wes, I completely agree with you. And Truman agrees with you. And Charles Taylor agrees with you. And because it's interesting in Truman's book, the reason I'm bringing this up in Truman's book, he he's quoting again, Taylor from a secular age. And one of the things that this distinction that we see that's happening is Taylor talks about it with regards to mimesis and paesis. And now I just talk about this from the perspective of a world that is a purely physical world versus a world that is teleological. Now, uh, mimetic view of the world it means that it has a given order, whereas Paesis sees the world as just raw material or just the physical stuff in which you can create meaning out of. Now, you can start to see how this gives birth to individualism, how it gives birth particularly to a radical individualism in this idea for others that don't see the teleology, West, they're, they're like, well, I am the teleology. So I'm going to I'm going to take this material stuff and I'm going to form it into whatever I want, gender and species. Right. The logic goes wherever you want it to go. That train's going once you're on it. So that that's the way they're viewing the world. Whereas whereas you're absolutely right. We have a teleological view that is transcendent. In other words, 
it has a given order that we do not create, we encounter. And and that's an important Christian perspective that I, I think a lot of people have have really lost sight of. And that is, you know, how teleology works from a Christian perspective. And notice, and this gets to, I think, what you're getting at too, Wes, is that teleology makes sense of flourishing. So then we say, well, a thing flourishes when it fulfills the purpose that it was created for. So Mm. a flourishing car is one that's fulfilling its purpose versus one that's sitting broken on somebody's front lawn, right? If a human being, if we're going to ask what's going to lead to the good of humanity, we have to ask, well, what is a human created for? And the Bible's quite specific on this. And and our our flourishing actually is not defined by our sexuality from a Christian perspective. Our our flourishing is defined Mm. by our relationship to God and our relationship to one another and under submission to not our teleology, but to God's teleology and his design for the world in finding our meaning, our flourishing within that purpose. Well, and, and, and I know we've, we've talked uh, long and used a lot of big words so far, but I do think that the last point is very important, uh, Andy, is that you know, our identity is not confined or constrained or defined by our sexuality, because we as Christians believe that the perfect iteration, the perfect explanation of who humanity is, is in Jesus Christ. And he was a celibate man. He, he was a single celibate man his entire life. And so if we dictate that we cannot be fulfilled individuals and fully uh, fulfilled in our identity, unless we're in a you know, romantic or sexual relationship, unless we're living out our sexual fantasies 100% of the time, then what are we saying about Jesus, the perfect yeah. man who was, you know, the the individual who was the representation of the original creation? And just because Andy is such a nerd and he just assumes we all know what te- teleological means, um, that's relating to or involving the explanation of f- uh phenomena in terms of the purpose they serve rather than the cause by which they arise. So that's the philosophical definition. Theologically, it would just relate to the doctrine of design and purpose in the material world. That's right. It's just interesting how scripture just, it's just says a house divided against itself cannot stand. Like that's, that speaks to our churches. That speaks to us as individuals, a hundred percent. Like if you are divided against yourself, you will ruin yourself. You see all these organizations when there is a lack of agreement, which is often caused by a lack of foundation that everyone is rooted on, it will implode. That's just what happens. It, we, and you see it at every level. And, and I think that's, that's really why, as you guys have so like perfectly highlighted, Christ is calling us to holiness. And in that holiness, it's wholeness. He wants you to be made whole in him. And you cannot do that by cherry picking different aspects of your identity in who you are. And that goes for me and my blackness. I can't, Lord, I want to be whole in you, but I can't just be so focused on being a black Christian because that will actually divide me against myself. On that note, and given that uh, Wes is such a Greek nerd, that the <laughs> word teleology comes from the word telos, which is, which is Greek. 
uh, for design, but it's this, this comes back to holiness as you're talking about Troy and that the word for perfect in Greek is teleos and teleos is, you can see that the root is, is with regards to design It's with regards to telos and something is perfect when it fulfills the purpose, the design that it was created for. And, this is very much along the lines of what it means to be holy as a Christian. What, what does it mean to be perfect? It, it means to fulfill the purpose that, that we were created for, to, to living in right relationship with God, in right relationship with one another. That leads to our good, to our holiness, to our flourishing, to perfection from a Christian perspective. And that's what we're called to as, be as humans, right? Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, 48, Therefore, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And that you're exactly right, Andy. That's the, you know, tilioi is the word that's used, telos. So we're, we're called to it. Called to it. I love it. Got even a little bit of Greek in there, <laughs> Wes. <laughs> sure you're loving that. But uh, I, I just, I hope that our conversation today, one, just reminds people that you can and should be thinking through these and talking through these issues. And I hope that we've provided a bit of clarity for you as you're thinking through what's going on in culture and all the stuff that's going on in the news and and the questions that people are having. And man, guys, I don't know about you, but I, I just pray that the Christian community will continue to just have clarity, but uh, also love and, and just a, a deeper heart for the gospel that people would find their identity, their humanity rooted in their teleology as God defined them and God created them and God gave them that will lead to their good, to their flourishing. If you want to go deeper on that subject, I just point people to a book I wrote on this topic called Reclaimed. Uh, and this book deals very much with the theology of what it means to be human. The subtitle is How Jesus Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World. I think that you'll find that one helpful. And again, I'd also recommend Truman's book. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. We pray you are challenged and encouraged as always. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, so make sure to like and subscribe, then interact with us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions about today's episode or anything that AC has coming up in the near future, feel free to send us an email at info at apologeticscanada.com. We will get back to you as soon as we can. But till next time, tune in next week as we find more things to think about. And you know the drill. Love God. Love people. Bye for now.